New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old towns of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, wet side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. In this episode, our time machine travels back to a parched New York City, suffering from a drought that began in 1949 and stretched into a very dry 1950. Desperate for rain, Mayor William O'Dwyer hired Dr. Wallace E. Howell a handsome 35-year-old meteorologist out of Harvard. Dr. Howell approached weather modification as a cool-headed scientist, not as the music man-style huckster you might expect. He legitimately believed he could harness the power of science to open the skies and quench Gotham City's thirst. We meet this headline-making man with his head literally in the clouds as we discuss... Howell's Storm, New York City's official rainmaker, and the 1950 drought. It's brought to us by author Jim Leak. Jim is a contributor to the Society for American Baseball Research Baseball Biography Project, as well as the writer or editor of several books on U.S. military history. We've chatted previously with Jim about his books, Nine Innings for the King, the day wartime London stopped for baseball, July 4th, 1918. And From the Dugouts to the Trenches, Baseball During the Great War. We also caught up with him about his Civil War novel for young adults, Matty Boy. That string of appearances makes Jim Leak the history author show's first four-peak guest. You can hear those interviews in our archives wherever you're listening now or stream them at historyauthor.com. Plus, thanks to the iHeartRadio app, you can play it from your smartphone or in your car if it has the app on the dashboard. And you can even just ask Alexa to play an episode of the History Author Show, and she'll do it for you. Follow Jim on Twitter, at Jim Leak, and notice that last name is spelled L-E-E-K-E. Okay, now that we've returned with our empty water bottle to the parched days of 1949 and 1950, let's join Jim Leak and scan New York City's cloudless skies for Howell's Storm. I'm joined on the line by Jim Leak, author of Howell's Storm, New York City's official rainmaker and the 1950 drought. Welcome back to the History Author Show, Jim. Thanks for having me again. I appreciate it. Well, you keep writing books that I really enjoy, and I'll keep having you back on to talk about them. I enjoyed Howl Storm. In fact, I wrote a little blurb for it that you asked me to write and to say something nice about the book. I was honored that you asked me to. And when you're talking about rain, when you're talking about the weather, so many great metaphors for an author. And you have this parched summer of 1950. 1950 is a great, perfect, dead center, mid-century, mid-20th century time. We can all picture it in our minds. Describe the conditions that drove New York City to seek a way to influence the weather when that does sound like such a fantastical thing. It is a very ambitious thing, isn't it? Yeah. New York City was in the midst of a very serious drought that actually had begun in 1949. And by December of that year, under uh, Mayor William O'Dwyer, they had implemented what they called dry days, when people cut back on their water use in New York City. It was sort of a gimmick and sort of a, a real thing. I mean, it did work to some extent. As 1950 came in, the situation seemed to be getting even worse. 
So they launched a program to increase the rainfall over the Catskill reservoirs, which is where New York City got their water. And they were about halfway through that program by the summer of 1950. How did you first come upon this? Because the last two times we spoke, we were talking baseball history and the Great War and how that overlapped. And I know baseball is one of your passions with Sabre. How did you come to meet Dr. Howell and decide to tell his story? Well, believe it or not, I read Dr. Howell's obituary in the New York Times in 1999, I think it was. And it was so fascinating. I thought it would make a great book. And I cut out the obit and put it in a file, stuck it in a drawer, and it stayed there for like 18 years <laughs> before someone agreed with me that this was a good, this would be, make a great book. And by the time I was ready to write that book. You mentioned about how New York City gets its water. And I know one of my first trips, I went to Mercy College before I went to Rutgers for a year and a half up there in Dobbs Ferry, up the Hudson River a ways, up where you can start to be able to drink the water, up where it's not brackish, not salty, like down in New York Harbor. One of the things we went and looked at, we were going to orientation for the Honor Society, was the Croton Aqueduct, the part of it that runs through there. That's where New York City gets its water, from that network of reservoirs. So say Johnny Cash does indeed return to quote his lyrics from The Highwayman as a single drop of rain. Trace that drop's journey for us. Where does it hit the ground and how does it make it down the Croton Aqueduct to a tap, say, on the Lower East Side? Right. It is an interesting journey. That drop in 1950 would have fallen somewhere in the Catskills, which is a big region, of course. And then it would have flowed downhill at varying speeds until it eventually reached one of the the reservoirs, either the Schoharie or the Ashokan Reservoir. And New Yorkers, forgive me if I didn't pronounce those uh, exactly correctly. (laughs) I know they're very particular about that up there. Yeah. So then from those reservoirs, which were connected by the Shandankan Tunnel, uh, Asopus Creek, the, the water would have continued towards New York into the uh, Croton watershed on the other side of the Hudson via the Catskill Aqueduct. And then it would have flowed south to Yonkers into the city mains and then on to New York City. It was quite a journey. And when that system was built, and when that portion of the system was built in the early 20th century, it was one of the great engineering feats of the time. When I read the phrase New York City's official rainmaker in the subtitle of Howell's Storm, I'm thinking of all of that interconnected waterway, all of the reservoirs. That's complicated enough. Who has the audacity to claim that he could make rain? And then since it's about New York City, you figure, well, typical. If I can make it here, I can make it anywhere. Where else but New York City would you decide that, hey, we need some rain. Let's let's figure out a way to do it. And 1950 is that perfect time for it. It's just an ambitious time. It's a time where people believe in anything. After World War II, America is really booming. So who was this gentleman, this one man, Dr. Wallace E. Howell? Was he a charlatan? Was he a visionary scientist? Was he just a huge dreamer? Or was he some combination of all those? He was a combination of some of those. He certainly wasn't a charlatan. He was a real scientist. He was a a meteorologist. And that phrase, New York City official rainmaker, that came from the newspapers, of course. (laughs) There you go. Yes. Howell himself thought of it as rain stimulation. What he wanted to do was stimulate more rain out of the clouds over the Catskills than would have fallen otherwise. So what he wanted to do was seed those clouds with either dry ice or silver iodide, uh, hoping to stimulate rainfall that wouldn't have fallen otherwise. And he could only do that when the the weather conditions were perfect for it. He, he couldn't go out and stimulate or make rain anytime he felt like it or someone ordered him to. Everything had to be perfect before he would even attempt it. And I want people to know that Howell's Storm is not a lot of talk about science. I originally studied science in school. I find it interesting, and I'm sure that I have still some of the vocabulary rattling around in my brain. But this is really a human story, and I think people like that 
disheveled scientist. They like the notion of somebody who's coming in. How many movies have we seen from that period, the 50s, where they're facing Godzilla or they're facing some horrible catastrophe? And in here they find the lone scientist who's been in his basement and tinkering with this and everyone has thought was crazy and nobody's really listened to. And here's his big chance to show that he knows what he's doing. And that's sort of how I pictured Dr. Howell as I'm reading Howell's Storm. And in fact, you have a project in there you mentioned, Project Cirrus. That sounds exactly like it could have come from a sci-fi film from the 50s, 60s, or 70s, Project Cirrus. What was that, and how did its outcome influence the events of your book and Dr. Howell himself? Well, Project Cirrus is very interesting, and it preceded the New York City project. It was actually a project that General Electric was involved with, very heavily involved with. And the scientists up there had been involved in weather research during World War II. And then after the war, they began Project Cirrus. The phrase they used was a research study of cloud particles and cloud modifications. And GE's role was uh, as a consultant working with the Army, the Navy, and the Air Force. This project had both military and civilian applications. What you probably are most interested in is the time they seeded a hurricane off Florida in October 1947. The newspaper men at that time wrote that the researchers were trying to bust the hurricane by seeding it with dry ice, which was dropped from two B-17 bombers, you know, the same bombers that they had used over Germany in World War II. Whether they were really trying to bust it went back and forth. At one point, spokesman said, absolutely not. They're just doing research. And another point that said, yeah, they're trying to bust the hurricane. <laughs> you know, in other words, to reduce its effects, to scatter it. So these two B-17s flew over the, the hurricane, dropped their dry ice, and then turned away back for the mainland, thinking that not very much had ha actually happened. They didn't see any effects right away. But after they, they left, the hurricane suddenly did this uh, huge left turn and slammed into Savannah, Georgia. The seating probably didn't cause that turn, but that certainly wasn't apparent at the time. So you can imagine the enormous uproar over this. Uh, and naturally, people remembered that episode in 1950 when Dr. Howell started seating over the Catskills. And it was the people at General Electric and the project serious people who recommended Dr. Howell to New York City in early 1950. Yeah, I guess you don't just go to the yellow pages at the time and look for a rainmaker. <laughs> no, no, you didn't. But as you pointed out, it was a very optimistic time, uh, at least scientifically. Just about anything seemed possible after all the advances during the war and just after. So it was a very audacious thing. But even so, it would take it would take New York City to even attempt something like that. I, I can't, really can't imagine another city anywhere in the world at that time who really would even have attempted it. In fact, you mentioned that about the time and how full people were of this optimism and this can-do spirit. You write in Howell's Storm, it was, after all, the middle of the 20th century the American century, when New Yorkers in particular saw themselves as a people to whom nothing is impossible. So that's one thing to plan it out. It's one thing to give that big Braveheart type speech and rally the men, but then Dr. Howell has to actually start working at it. So here it is, New York City Press, or maybe the press anywhere, but nowhere more than New York City, especially at the time with all those dailies. Here's the guy. He's going to save us. He knows what he's doing. He's smart. He, he's going to bring us some rain and everybody's going to be taking long baths. Oh, in a couple of days, I'm, I'm sure is the, is the impression that, that people get from the reporting. But he has to actually crunch the numbers. He has to get in those planes with the dry ice and do all of those things to actually make it happen and explain, as you just mentioned, that he's not making the rain. He's waiting for the conditions in the atmosphere to be favorable for him to be able to tweak them a little. So he does need a, a little bit of help from nature, and then he can try to give it a hand, maybe sort of like planting a field, right? You need to actually have the dirt and certain elements before you can plant. Just throwing the seeds anywhere on the ground isn't going to work any better than his idea of seeding the clouds. So what successes does Dr. Howell have 
as these famously impatient New Yorkers are demanding he fill their reservoirs. I'm picturing them marching up and down 6th Avenue with their empty cups and things like that. They they want water, and it's a desperate human need. So how does he go about starting, and then how does he start to get some results and get people to give him more time? Because I, I picture it as I'm reading Howl's Storm. He's trying to He's trying to find some success so that he can keep doing what he's doing. This is a dream come true. It was a, a stop-and-go sort of effort. In early 1950, when he was finally ready to begin seeding, first with the dry ice, nature didn't cooperate with him. As you say, you can't seed whenever you want to. And initially, ironically, his his first missions were scrubbed because it was raining. <laughs> it was raining so hard that he couldn't take off. So as you can imagine, the New York City newspapers just had a field day with that. <laughs> Rain-making scrub because of rain, that, that type of thing. The reservoirs did slowly begin to fill over 1950. In fact, they'd already reached the low point, though that wasn't apparent at the time. As you mentioned, in, impatient New Yorkers, they tended to be unhappy whenever the, the rain that they so desperately wanted inconvenienced them. <laughs> I, I know this will shock you. <laughs> And, and then in April of 1950, there was this very unusual April snowfall, which immediately was dubbed Howl Snow. And New Yorkers sort of freaked out over that. You know, what is this man Howl doing and why do we have snow on the ground in April? Even though Dr. Howl almost certainly hadn't caused that snow. And if he had any influence, at all, it was very, very small. But he was a good sport about it and even good-naturedly posed in the snow outside City Hall for press photographers. And then later, of course, people complained if ball games were rained out or if it rained on holidays and, and that type of thing. In fact, an amusement park across the river in New Jersey even offered to pay Hal twice as his fee <laughs> if he would not make it rain. Uh, so, so. <laughs> Palisades Amusement Park, wasn't it? It was. Yeah, that's that's a fun, that was a fun story for me. My parents used to go on dates back then. Well, late 50s, they graduated high school. So right around this period of time. And in fact, that's an interview I did with the grandson of the fellow that started Callahan's Hot Dogs in Fort Lee. If you want to hear what life was like back then in the 50s, stopping for a hot dog and a soda on the way back from Palisades Park. Or you can or you can go listen to the song by the Lovin' Spoonfuls about Palisades Park called Palisades Park. I love that 50s vibe that you get here. And it's almost as if people want to get on with the fun of the 50s. So can you just take care of the rain? We don't want to stop marching forward for something as simple as, as a drought. We want to harness it. We're not going to just shrug and move on. They want to get somebody and they find Dr. Howell and he's he's expected to deliver right away. And if you can only make it rain at night and have it clear up by about seven, you know, they really think it's an exact science. It's not. Right. There, there was an awful lot of misunderstanding and miscommunication and lack of basic scientific knowledge among the, the public at the time. So Dr. Howell, he had a hard task in front of him. Part of it was education, and he did a, a lot of that type of thing. He would, I don't know how many press interviews he must have done. He was on television. He was on radio. He was all over the place trying to explain to New Yorkers what he was trying to accomplish. By the way, you mentioned photographs, and I wanted to ask you about the photograph on the front of the book, because that's one of those pictures, even if it wasn't the cover of Howl's Storm, I would probably stop and look at that picture for a moment. Man with the hood of one of those great old 40s cars up, and he's trying to get it started. It's, pr it's probably flooded the engine or, or something, and, you know, ankle deep in the water, and just a flooded street in New York City. You can just see probably, eh, maybe not the Empire State Building behind, I think it's a Park Row building, just peeking out from above a building in the middle of this rainy scene. Cars on the curb are half-flooded there. Where did this picture come from, and how did you come to choose it for the cover of Howl's Storm? Well, that's an Associated Press photo from a monster storm that hit New York and much of the United States in, in November uh, 1950, of this monster storm that hit New York City and, and much of the country. Actually, it was the publisher that chose that picture because it is so dramatic. It's a great image, though, isn't it? It so perfectly captures New York City of, of the time. 
all the buildings, all the cars, all of the uh, store names and advertising. Uh, I love that that photo. But I originally thought it would, it would run it inside, but the the publishers just loved it so much that they pulled it out front. Yeah, it is. It does capture so much. And I hope we're piquing people's interests that they'll go and want to pick up the book and enjoy what's inside, too, because the inside story is just as interesting. And if you want to see what well, what's that guy doing, you know, I want to know, did he get his car started? It's a real action shot. Where's he going? Where's he coming from? How long does this rain last? Is his house flooded when he gets home? Anybody who's who's been a homeowner and worried about the rain clouds coming and flooding their basements, those are all the real personal concerns that people have as he's up there seeding the clouds. People don't want to have too much rain. And we've joked about how people are picky and they only want it at certain times and certain places. But people were afraid, especially after the ground has been dry for so long, about flash floods and all that come rocketing through. He has to be a man of a certain character and a certain weight to have people have confidence in him because if he was a fly-by-night guy like some of these scientists are in the old movies that they're farcical people might have been even more afraid that this guy is going to be up there playing and i think whether they really realized it or not they had confidence in him and that's why they trusted him to try to fix this unfortunately that trust is not going to last forever it may have a pretty short shelf life in new york city about as short as a banana usually is your trust if you're not <laughs> you're not giving results but he's trying and he has that initial period it's it's nice to see it embodied in one person and a story that i had never heard before right you know wallace Howell, he was the real deal he was a phd meteorologist he was a soft spoken veteran of world war 2 when New York hired him, he was 35 years old and a researcher at Harvard's Blue Hill Observatory. He wasn't any kind of charlatan. He wasn't. He wasn't Bill Starbuck, shaking his his noisemakers and 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 making it rain for the the poor farmers out there on the plains. He probably would have rejected the notion that he was a a visionary. He considered himself a scientist. And he was a scientist. And he appreciated the tremendous research opportunity that New York City suddenly handed him. As I said, I can't imagine any other municipality anywhere in the world launching a project like this. Only New York had the, had the moxie to attempt this thing. And so he had to get there and start trying, which is great. It's that he just jumps the chance. He jumps right into it. And when things didn't go to plan, and of course, anything this big, it's not going to go exactly the way you expect it. He adapts and, and continues on. He's a very dogged and determined uh, researcher and scientist, and I really like that about him. He seems to also know the key thing about science or maybe even about life on a larger scale, and that you learn from your mistakes. So if you make it a mistake or something doesn't go the way you plan, you're still going to learn from it. But again, that's not going to please the people that are on the ground who want results right now. They want to wash their laundry. They want to take a bath. Kids want to fill pools in the summer and splash around. And <laughs> they don't They want to hear about you learning from your mistakes. That's right. He had to please the city. He had to please the 8 million people. To a large extent, he had to placate the, the people in the Catskills, which is where the rain was falling and he was operating. It was a very, very difficult position. And, and he did the best he could. You just have to feel for it over that entire year. It was under such pressure, but he carried on as a scientist. He was a scientist, and that's, that's what he did. He, he followed the science as best he could and as, as determinedly as he could. In retrospect, we can really root for him because he doesn't have to take this thankless job. He could, he could stay home, but he really cares about the science. He wants to get out there and, and see if he can help some people and learn something, and even if it doesn't help with this drought, may help down the road. No, you're right. He doesn't have to take the job, but there was this tremendous opportunity and other meteorologists were, were rooting for him. In fact, it was one of them who suggested that he request the $100 a day. Now, that was his fee because that was more than meteorologists were getting for any, anywhere else or any other project. So he had fellow scientists on his side. I thought of many things in Old New York, many of the previous books that I've read and authors that I've spoken to as I was reading Howell's Storm. One was New York Times urban affairs correspondent Sam Roberts. He wrote a book called A History of New York and 101 Objects that we chatted about. 
One of those objects that we discussed in our interview is the water tanks that are a fixture on rooftops in New York City. If you've seen Spider-Man comics or the movies, you know he's always hanging out up there on one of them. And they're real unique works of art. In fact, only two companies manufacture them in the country for New York City. You don't just go and pick one up, I guess, at Lowe's or Home Depot. The reason we have those is because of water pressure, because a lot of the cities down low, you wouldn't be able to build these skyscrapers, wouldn't be able to build even buildings that were as high as the higher tenements, uh, six stories or so, if you didn't have a water tank on the roof. So at one point when City Hall says it may cut water pressure if people don't voluntarily conserve water, the AP writes, quote, this would divide New Yorkers into two classes, the people downstairs with water and the people upstairs without How do different groups in the city endure the drought differently? How does it impact somebody who's not wealthy, who's living in a poor area, as opposed to somebody who's well-off, or even if we're not looking at the economic strata of people, how does it just affect people who are in a taller building, a lower building, a lower part of the city, a higher part, a part that's near a park, a part that's not near a park? Well, you know how it goes. The the lower you are on the socioeconomic scale, the, the more you feel the effects of any sort of restriction. So the city closed public pools, it banned watering your lawns, kids couldn't play in the spray from open uh, fire hydrants, you got fined if you washed your car. Though interestingly enough, the water commissioner didn't shut down the car washes because they didn't want to cost people their jobs. Hmm. You know, the lower down you, you were, the more the more you felt it. And that's, <laughs> that's just the way it is. But the, the real divide, as I mentioned before, was between, wasn't between classes of New Yorkers. It was between the city and the rural communities up in, up in the Catskills, because that's where Hal was seeding the clouds. And that region relied on summer tourism. And, and the folks up there were naturally worried about how rainy weather or unusually rainy wet weather would affect their economy. They had a point because the city was experimenting over the Catskills, not over Manhattan or the boroughs. So the needs of the city were always at the expense of the mountain communities. And it's a double-edged sword too for them because not only are the people in New York City demanding rain up where you are, where you have your resort or your cabins up in the woods. But that's going to discourage them from coming and visiting because if it's hot time summer in the city, the Catskills is one of the places you're going to say, hey, let's go up there, get a cabin and maybe just relax, enjoy some swimming in the lakes, but not if it's raining. So they're getting getting kind of a double whammy there if it's being made to rain for the city and then they're losing out on tourism dollars from the people that would normally come on a summer or during the year, say, with the leaves start to change in autumn, they're they're really stuck. And he has to balance all this, or rather, that's the politician's concern. He's he's focused on the science. He's focused on the science, but his his is the name that comes up. Yeah. <laughs> they're complaining about Dr. Howe. And in part, it's misunderstanding the science. He's not bringing the rainstorms. He's only trying to get a little more rain out of the storms that come anyway. But that's not an easy thing maybe to explain or might even be harder to accept. So there was always tension between the city and the Catskill communities all during that year. And as you say, any rain affects the tourism. It was sort of a, a rainy summer in 1950. It rained more often, but not as much, if you know what I mean. So it was sort of a gloomy summer, and the local politicians, seeing the effects on the the tourism, on on the resorts, they really were not happy. They were not happy at all. You're enjoying my chat with Jim Leake. His last name is spelled L E E K E. He's the author of Howl's Storm, New York City's Official Rainmaker and the 1950 Drought. You can also follow Jim on Twitter, at Jim Leak. I like that you earned, you earned a meteorologist's praise. Not not so easy to do, especially when writing about science when you're not a scientist. That's not easy. And having worked in news myself, I know 
that there's always that pressure to hype weather events. And while the men and women doing the actual science have that unenviable task of imparting the facts on people, they don't want to hear a forecast that doesn't tell them what they want to hear or that ends up being wrong after they've packed up all their supplies and things like that. It's something where they are trying to provide a public service. People don't yell at the sports guy, right, when the when the Mets lose. So it doesn't surprise them at all. So they just expect, you know, hey, the game could be won or lost. But there's something about being a meteorologist that people do expect you to control the weather. And then the fact that Howell is pushed out front as, hey, here's a guy that can control the weather. That's doubly tough on him. People aren't interested in the distinctions that you made earlier about, well, he's just goosing the weather, just goosing the rain and the clouds. They want to take it out on him, especially when you're hot and you haven't bathed in a while and you're you're really snapping at people. Man, he's the perfect target when he's out front, and he's the one who's going to catch the first arrow as the face of the drought. What impact will that have on his life as people take this journey with Dr. Howell in Howell's storm. What impact does it have on his life as a human being? It had a huge impact during that year and for a while afterwards. Dr. Howell said, I didn't know I was going to be a celebrity and I don't want to be one. But it wasn't up to him. He was a celebrity. As soon as he took that job, he was a celebrity. He was in the newspapers all the time, in, in the news sections, in the feature columns, even on the sports page. He was on, uh, TV, on radio, and magazines. He was in The New Yorker. For a while there, most New Yorkers probably knew his name and what he was doing. And everything weather-related seemed to have Hal's name attached to it. The funny thing is, he never lived in New York. He had a home outside Boston, and he came down to, to the city when he, he needed to, but only when he needed to. And he actually directed uh, many of the seating operations from his home up outside Boston. Did they ever find out he was from Boston and start getting mad at him, saying this is why he's doing this to New York? <laughs> it seems like there had to be one reporter who'd pull that out. You know, you would think so, <laughs> but it may have been somewhat before the real hard feelings between uh, Yankees and Red Sox fans. So I, 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 didn't, I didn't see that in the newspapers. Well, they still have the local rivalries then, I guess. The Dodgers haven't left town yet, and so they still have the local teams that can fight off against each other or spar against each other, so there wasn't that rivalry. But that's funny if it was the case. I'm I'm picturing him there in his plane thinking, gosh, don't say anything with a Beantown accent. (laughs) (laughs) The city is an island. You mentioned Manhattan Island. So if people are thinking, wait a minute, it's surrounded by water. If it's an island, there's water everywhere. But the Hudson River down where the city is, is brackish and and New York Harbor. Then it's salty. When you get higher up in the Hudson River or the North River, as it was more commonly called, it does become drinkable once more. I mentioned Dobbs Ferry and, and going to Mercy College. So you think, well, couldn't you just plug a big hose in there and truck all that water down to the city? And that way, once it's pumped down, everybody in Manhattan can have a drink. Is that a possible solution? So that's one of the things that people start to think about sapping that water. What happens? What becomes of those ideas or of that idea to tap the Hudson for fresh water? Well, New York City actually got permission from the state to build a pumping station in Dutchess County. They did build it, but they promised to use it only in extreme emergencies. That was the phrase, extreme emergencies. Poughkeepsie wasn't happy about it at all because Poughkeepsie had nearly run out of water itself. So it was controversial, but New York City never used that Dutchess County pumping station. I remember in the 70s, we had a big drought when I was in grade school. X number of days water left. The reservoir is only at 20% water. That was the fate here. And when you think of a city as big as New York, when you throw those numbers out, even reading about them 70 years later, adds so much to the narrative of Howell's storm. I'm picturing that day coming where they turn on the faucet one morning and nothing comes out but dust. How low exactly do these reservoirs get? How low do they flirt with about when this drought is ongoing in 1950? Well, the the worst of it had already passed just before Dr. Hal began his work. But of course, they didn't know that at the time. At the low point, the overall capacity of the Catskill reservoirs and the Croton Reservoir was almost exactly one-third of capacity. So that was really worrying. It gradually crept up 
through 1950. It would go up a ways. Uh, they'd hit a dry spell, a drop, it would go up again. But the general trend was upward uh, still. Now, it wasn't to the point where the city officials felt comfortable. And the capacity always drops over the summer when there's, there's heavy water use. So they kept the dry days in effect for quite a long time into the summers, even though the, the water levels were rising. And by the way, I'm thinking as I'm talking to you and about the science, and I mentioned my science background, so I guess I have to make sure that I don't come across as not thinking of these things. But a reservoir isn't like the tank of gas in your car. And I think there's always our tendency to think of it that way, where the yellow light's going to come on and tell you you need to fill up soon and it'll run out to the last few drops of gas. It has to be at a certain percentage just to be able to pump that water out safely and not have a lot of gunk in there that's going to get into the pipes and going to clog up the station and, and be purified and, and all that. So that's even closer than it sounds being one third. That's that's not even one third that they're going to be able to use over time. That's really close to their lowest level that it can function as a reservoir. It is because the last few percentages, uh, as you say, is really unusable. So it's less than one third. We spoke a little bit about the political factors in dealing with the press Dr. Howell, you mentioned he's a soft-spoken guy. He's a scientist first. He's not a PR guy. He's not looking to do the flashy part of the rainmaking. It was nice for him to go out there and do a photo for a photographer <laughs> standing in the snow. I wonder how his approach changes, how people will see it change over the course of Howell's storm. They follow him. He's Suddenly he's an employee of New York City. Suddenly he's a celebrity. He gets this big, splashy introduction, except it's not splashy because there's no rain coming or not as much rain. So more like a chinchilla. If you've ever seen a chinchilla take a dust bath, it's more like that. He comes into the dusty area into town, like sort of like a scientific Clint Eastwood in one of those spaghetti westerns. He rides on in. They really trumpet his arrival. And then eventually New York City is going to move on if this trend continues and if he doesn't deliver exactly the product that they think they're going to get for their $100 a day. So how does he deal with that over time or does he never really get any better at the PR aspect of it? Howell never really changed. He was always soft-spoken. He was always direct, factual, modest. He was a scientist and he rather puzzled New Yorkers. <laughs> and the press at the start and, and all through because they, they weren't used to this sort of personality in the news. And, you know, weather is fantastically complex and Hal only took credit for what he could prove. And it was hard to prove much of anything back then. It's not a whole lot easier now. So it was very big news when Dr. Hal finally said he thought he had made rain. But in the next breath, he added that in some cases, he might have prevented rain, too, accidentally. <laughs> so Dr. Hal tried to uh, seed every appropriate storm. He called them triggerable cloud formations. And he wanted to do it through every season in the Catskills. And he did this from the air, and he did it from ground generators, which the city built for him. But his strength as a scientist was... Also, his undoing as a public servant, as a consultant, you ask about the cover picture. That was the big November storm. That was a monster storm that hit everywhere from the Ohio Valley on up through the Northeast on November 25th, 1950. That's where the title of the book comes from, How Storm, That Storm. It was a very definite line of that storm. On one side, you've got blizzards. On the other side, you got torrential rain and, and wind. So here in Ohio, where I live, they played the famous Ohio State-Michigan football game, the Snow Bowl, where it was in the middle of this blizzard and the people in the stands couldn't really even see the, the game. But in New York was on the rain side of the line. So they got torrential rain, hurricane-strength winds, and then the temperatures just plummeted. And that was in New York City. Up in the Catskills, a number of the small communities up there just had devastating floods. Now, Dr. Howell was a scientist. He wanted to seed the clouds throughout the year in every sort of weather. And when it was revealed that one of his teams had briefly seeded that storm with silver iodide from a ground generator, 
people got really, really mad. New York City got hit with more than 100 lawsuits charging that Dr. Howell and his team had caused these devastating floods up in the Catskills. And those cases dragged through the courts for years and years. Nobody ever collected a dime because think about it, one ground generator isn't going to do much for a storm of that magnitude. And they were too far away from the uh, the worst affected communities to have had any effect anyway, no, no matter. But that didn't count for much in, in the anger of the time. And it was effectively the end of the New York City rain stimulation project <laughs> because New York City had just elected a new mayor two weeks before the storm. And that administration <laughs> saw this bad publicity and didn't want anything to do with Dr. Howe and, and the rain project. It was a PR nightmare. He, he had an initial six-month contract that was renewed for another six months. So when that year was up, uh, the city washed its hands of Dr. Howell. And when he handed in his final report, it disappeared into a briefcase and never saw the light of day until he published it in a, in a weather journal 30 years later. Well, they washed their hands thanks to some success he had, or else they wouldn't have any water. <laughs> so <laughs> he said nobody made out. And I was thinking, well, I bet there are some lawyers that really got a good deal out of that. You know, they, they've had some billable hours dragging that out, but it wasn't something you could prove. It's such a subjective thing. I was saying earlier about being in news. There are people that feel you can never hype a storm too much because if it doesn't pan out, if there's no snow and you predicted a foot, well, you just say, oh, well, what can you do? It's the weather. You can't predict the weather if you look at when a hurricane's coming. Everyone always tries to find the one track that shows it hitting New York City if you're a New York City station or if you're in another part of the country on the eastern seaboard, you try to find it aiming towards you. So he really was going into this with a lot of things stacked against him. You mentioned the snowball, which reminded me of another scientist we meet in Howell's Storm. He's known as the snowman, Vincent Schaefer. Gives you an idea of some of the colorful characters from the 50s we'll be meeting in this forgotten chapter of the city's history. There's also a General Electric short film about the guy and his weather technique. So if people want to pull that up on YouTube or something and go find it out there, what will they see? Who was this man? Vince Schaefer is really... My second favorite character <laughs> in this story behind Dr. Howe, he was a really a self-educated scientific wizard. His only degrees were honorary. He went to work at the uh, General Electric Research Lab, uh, the House of Magic, in the machine shop in the 1920s. His mentor was Irving Langmuir, who was a Nobel laureate, but in chemistry, not in meteorology. And like Langmuir, Schaefer became a very respected researcher himself. He loved snow, and in 1940, he developed a technique to make impressions of snowflakes on plastic film. So that's how he became known as the snowman. Then in 1947, Schaefer learned how to make snow himself in a GE freezer with dry ice. Nobody had ever done this before. He was, he was trying to figure out how do you make snow? How do you trigger snow? And he was doing it in a GE freezer in the research lab. That's what you can see on, on YouTube. He very quickly duplicated that experiment in the real world, making snow over Mount Greylock, Massachusetts, from a small plane by seeding dry ice. Schaefer and Dr. Howell met in 1948 at Mount Washington Observatory. And they became friends. They, they started this sort of Dear Vince, Dear Wally correspondence that lasted for years. And it was Dr. Langmuir who recommended Hal to New York City, but it was Vince Schaefer who introduced Langmuir to Hal. So that, that was the connection. And, and I mentioned the Dear Vince, Dear Wally correspondence. Family and friends called Dr. Hal Wally, but personally, I can't picture it. <laughs> To me, he's, he's always Dr. Howe or Wallace Howe or Wallace E. Howe. <laughs> Wally just doesn't fit my picture of him. I'm sorry. Funny, I thought of that when I was going to do the interview and I thought, I guess I'll refer to the guy as Dr. Howell because he just seems like that in my mind from reading Howell's Storm. But it's funny, I got that exact same impression from him. He just seems like somebody who 
not promoting or anything, but just that you would give that respect to and doesn't seem to have much of a persona. That's why I asked how it impacted his personal life, because it's one of those people that you do see in those B movies where you think, gosh, if you peeled the lab coat off that guy, there's probably nothing inside. And, you know, he's just an empty, an empty jacket. But that's not who this guy was. He really cared about this. It's great to read a story about somebody that really cares about what they're doing and wants to make the world a better place use their knowledge for humanity's betterment. But you write in Howell's storm that Dr. Howell likely would have been disappointed, though, that scientists and meteorologists are still arguing about the worthiness of cloud seeding and weather modifications. You can't pick up a paper today without hearing somebody talk about humans influencing the weather and trying to change things. So how can the boundless scientific confidence of New York City's official rainmaker in 1950, inspire your readers to dream the impossible here in the 21st century in whatever our endeavor is, and just keep trying. Right. Well, you know, proving the efficacy of cloud seeding, or the lack of it, uh, is extraordinarily difficult. How do you prove that the rain that falls after a seeding wouldn't have fallen anyway? That's, you know, that's incredibly difficult. And cities, states, and even countries all around the world still use silver iodide in their seeding programs, but the actual science hasn't progressed much in almost 70 years. That would have disappointed Wallace Howe, I think. I came to that conclusion while I was writing the book. And when I was pretty well along, I I had the privilege of meeting one of his sons, uh, Dr. Stephen Howe. He told me the exact same thing, that his father would be disappointed that the, the basic knowledge progressed much in all these decades. Clearly today, we don't have the the boundless confidence in scientific solutions that New Yorkers had in in 1950. Today, it's it's practically the opposite. People don't believe the science, (laughs) no matter how good it is. They know what they know, not what someone can prove. So I think Wallace Howe offers us a brilliant example of a researcher of a scientist who always keeps his eyes on the data and the experiment, despite politics and and public opinion and every sort of distraction imaginable. And thank God we still have plenty of people like him in the scientific community working today. You know, the deal is we have to start paying attention to them. We have to start listening to them. This anti-science bias that's so prevalent today, I, I think is incredibly dangerous. I just don't understand it. And, and I hope Dr. Howell's story can help to counterbalance that in, in whatever tiny way. He was an amazing, ordinary scientist. I just love the guy, and uh, I came to respect him so much. And I, I hope that comes through in the book. It does. I was going to say he passed it on to me in Howell's storm. I came to appreciate him, and also it's somebody who has experience in a few different areas here that he deals with. Seeing him stand up to politicians, too, and admit that he doesn't know things, I mean, <laughs> or that he doesn't know what's causing it, or that he still needs to research more, that's not an easy thing to do anymore either. And we've lost those scientists working in their basement with extreme passion. We talked with uh, Michael Hiltzik about his book, Big Science. You have to be attached to somebody. It's hard to be a little scientist. It's hard to carry your passion, but you can still do it. You just walk a different lane, a different path than Dr. Wallace Howell did. I wanted to ask you as my final question to leave listeners with the answer to that question I asked you at the top of our chat about whether he was a visionary scientist, whether he was a charlatan, which you've answered, that he he didn't have a charlatan bone in his body, the press took care of that for him, where he fell. So how do you hope readers of Howell's Storm will remember the efforts of New York City's official rainmaker after they finish reading your book? You know, there's a short anecdote in the book. I spoke with Stephen Howell, Dr. Stephen Howell, the adult son. But in the book, there's an account where as a small boy, Whenever Wallace Howell, his father, would, was working in New York to stimulate the rain, whenever Stephen saw rain, he'd run up to his dad with a question. And the question was, did you do it, Dad? Did you? <laughs> and, you know, I think that's still a good question. Did he do it? Dr. Howell thought he did to some extent. I think he did to some extent. Can you prove it? <laughs> in a way, 
Can you prove it to a certainty? No, you can't. After all this time, you still can't definitively answer that question. But I think it was worth the attempt then. I think any scientific research and attempt is worth it now. And I hope people keep that in mind. Well, Jim Leake, author of Howl's Storm, thank you for joining me yet again with another great story, another really enjoyable book here. You delivered something that's hidden in those newspaper archives, and I love to pour through those archives, but I guess I'm too lazy to write every story up into a book. So it's great that authors like you are out there and you you do it for me, and then I get to get that story without doing all the research and writing and editing. I really do appreciate that. I wish you the best of luck with Howlstorm, and I want to thank you for giving us all a reason to look up at the sky on a rainy day a little bit different and wonder if Wallace Howell did that. Thank you very much. I enjoyed talking with you, and I enjoyed talking about Dr. Wallace Howell. Again, the book is Howell's Storm, New York City's Official Rainmaker and the 1950 Drought. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there, or even navigate via the Amazon banner on our homepage the next time you purchase anything from Amazon. Say you want a pair of galoshes. Well, you go to historyauthor.com. That banner takes you through to Amazon, and Amazon.com gives us a small percentage of every dollar you spend at no additional charge in your shopping cart. Once again, thanks to Jim Leake for joining us and for sharing the story of a forgotten scientist caught up in the thirsty whirlwind of New York City politics. Remember to let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at HistoryDean and at Jim Leake on Twitter. Remember that last name is spelled L-E-E-K-E. You can also drop us a line at facebook.com slash historyauthor or visit us on Instagram at the History Author Show. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And remember, if you're an iTunes subscriber, please take a minute to leave us a review. Until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great we still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before.